Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Alyssa and Maxime both work at the Institute of Plant Genetic Resources in the city of Leningrad in the Soviet Union. The Institute houses the world's first seed bank, an irreplaceable trove of living genetic diversity, which holds the potential to both preserve and transform modern agriculture. Their dedication to the Institute is taking place at a time when the city of Leningrad is suffering through one of the worst sieges in the history of humanity. Tens of thousands of people are starving to death in this, what has become known as the Siege of Leningrad in World War II. These characters portrayed in the film actually lived and the events they experienced actually happened. The film is raw, it is compelling, it is stately, and it is otherworldly. The film, again, is called One Man Dies a Million Times, and we're joined today by the director, producer, writer, and editor, Jessica Orrick. Jessica, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'm going to just let our audience know that you were kind enough to come on many, many years ago. It was one of the very first interviews that I did. That film was titled Beetle Queen Conquers Tokyo, just a terrific documentary film. This is an amazing film. There's a storyline here that is part historic, it's part love story, and it's also part of a kind of science fiction vibe to it in that it it takes place in World War II, but it also has a sense of it could be happening today. What inspired the story behind One Man Dies a Million Times? Um, actually, while I was making my third film, The Vanquishing of the Witch, Baba Yaga, that was... Gosh, we shot that in 2010, I want to say, or 2011. Sean and I were in St. Petersburg shooting, and we happened upon the seed bank that is featured in the film. Our translator was telling us the story about it, and I just was blown away by it. Um, It's a really astonishing story. I actually started researching then. We haven't been talking about this film since 2011. At a certain point, it just it felt like it had to, it had to be made. They were, I didn't have a, I didn't have a choice. It's not, I mean, as you know, having seen my other films, it's not the type of film that I would normally make, but it really felt like I had to make it or I would go crazy. Well, in addition to the fact that you normally are known for your documentary film work, and this is, I believe your first narrative film. So in making the decision to move forward with this film. Was it ever going to be a documentary about Nikolai Vavilov? Or was it always going to be a narrative film? It was always going to be a narrative film. Um, The film sort of presented itself to me fully formed. Yeah, like I said, I didn't really have a choice about it. I didn't have a choice about how it was going to be made. I didn't have a choice about what it was going to look like. It just came to me the way it was. So. Yeah, I knew I was gonna. I knew it was gonna be a narrative. There were some things that changed. Originally, Vavilov was in the story um, because he himself has a really amazing history. He and he actually ended up starving to death in prison in one of Stalin's prisons before the war. But in the end, to me, the the seed bank was really what I was what I was interested in more than Vavilov as a character. And that idea of the seed bank 
this was the first seed bank or? Yeah, it was the world's first seed bank. Before we even understood genetics, Vavilov decided that it was, that we were losing genetic diversity. Before we had a word for genetic diversity, he decided that it was time to start collecting seeds from all around the world. And he really went all around the world. And the seeds that they have there at the seed bank are irreplaceable because they existed nowhere else because he started collecting way before anyone understood what we were losing. It's amazing. It is truly amazing. In today's world, there are other food banks. I, I know one in Scandinavia that's yeah, seed banks. Yeah, yeah, seed bank. But wow, the idea that this was the first. And one of the interesting things about the film is that while it is about, I mean, I want to make sure I'm saying this correctly. It's about the siege of Leningrad. The mm-hmm. film is also framed in such a way. It's told in such a way as to be a bit time more timeless than that. Explain, I'm not doing a very good job, but. I spend a lot of time with people that are much younger than me. And I find that it's very hard for them to imagine World War II as a real historical event. It sort of blends in with all of the other content that they're consuming all the time. You know, whether that's Star Wars or whether that's TikTok videos, it's World War II feels very far away from their reality. So to me, I really wanted a film that was still applicable to a contemporary audience. And I really believe that come World War III, hopefully that doesn't happen, but should it, food scarcity is going to be one of our biggest issues. Um, So the film is set sort of in an alternative present slash future where the world has already been at war for a couple of years. So of course, the very first things to go are communications. So there's no internet, there are no cell phones, but it is still a contemporary world. There's still subways, there's still computers. They just don't have the same capabilities that they used to. And everything's sort of been patched together in this sort of post-apocalyptic way. But the story is still very true. Everything that happened in the film actually happened during World War II. It's just that now it takes place maybe sometime in the future, but hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully never, but you're right. And that's the thing that as I watched the film, it became more apparent to me what you just described as, and I really came to appreciate kind of this idea that the film, I mean, I don't think it morphed into, because this is what it was, but for me watching the film, I started out thinking, this is Leningrad, this is what this is about. But as the film progresses, it became more and more apparent to me that this is a window into the world of the future if we're not if we're not doing more than we should be doing right now and uh, just to give some idea because you mentioned the history of i did look up a little bit about the what happened at, at leningrad and the yeah. siege by the nazi army and i think also the uh, the italians might have been involved but this was mostly a, a german operation and the scale of of death and destruction that was wrought on these russian people uh is Hard to imagine, but the siege lasted for, I believe, about 900, 900 days. Nine, yeah. Almost 900 three, days. 900 yeah, days. One in every four people starved to, get, to death in the city. It was right. the worst siege in recorded history. We're talking about something that I don't think really gets any attention in our country, in the United States. I would agree with that. That Well, just in general. I mean, it is a general historical fact in the context of world history and also in the in the context of world politics and the understanding of the Russians and why they do what they do. And I'm not an apologist for the Russians in any way, shape or form here. But nonetheless, 
we in the West, in America, take a lot of credit for winning World War II, to some degree, deservedly so. But the Russians lost- They sacrificed so much. So much. Yeah. The Russians- Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was I just going to say, I really believe that had the Russians not stretched the German army so thin, there's no way we would have won. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. The Russians, and, by yeah. almost any estimate, somewhere between two, 20 million and 28 million Russians died in the course of about five years of, of warfare. I mean, the scale of it is h- hard to imagine. It is impossible. Yeah, it's basically impossible to imagine. It's Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. it, had it not been for the fact that the Russian people, the military commanders or whoever, were willing to, at the lack of a, the ability to fight them with their armaments, were willing to throw people essentially at the Rus- at the German army. And you're absolutely right. I remember the statistic from many years ago in terms of the amount of military that the Germans devoted to the Eastern Front was something like 14 divisions of their army and to the Western Front, something like five. Yeah. And if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about what the Germans thought of the Russians and their threat to their empire building exercise, and nothing else will. And I and I think again, it's it for a society that within the last 70 years lost 25 million people, and not understand that in the context of how they behave and what their fear level is about the rest of the world is foolish. And I just want to get that out there. Yeah, so. no, I agree. I agree. I mean. Russian history is very different than American history. United the, States the Army. Scale is just, the scale is unthinkable. You're right. As contrast to what I just said, the United States Army, and God bless the soldiers and veterans and all, we lost about 241,000 American soldiers in World War II. And not a, not a single enemy troop soldier stepped foot on the mainland. So anyway, all right. Enough history lesson, enough of that. But I, but it is. It starts out for me. This is about Leningrad. This is about what what happens in this siege. But it's also an allegory for me about if we don't get our act together in terms of climate change, monoculturism, all the all the other things that are are looming over the horizon for us as a as a species, we are going to be facing a very similar fate. And that really, to me, is is the crux of the film. It is an allegory. You know, it's not necessarily about these individual characters. It's not about the time that this place, that this took place, that the story took place. You know, it's very much just, a, you know, a way of um, expressing that very basic, like, we need to get our shit together. <laughs> Jessica Orrick, the threat of climate is the threat to our survivability. And, and high on that list is the ability to feed ourselves. Yes. And stay and sustain ourselves, and that's certainly, I mean, that's certainly a, a central element to all of this. And it's, again, I, I, this film is so powerful. I just want to let our audience know, it is so powerful um, in terms of the incremental way in which you tell the story of the people of that are who are dying and their and the way that they behave. And the way that they are brave and the way that they are not brave in this film is a lesson for all of us. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that you that you feel that way. It's to me, it feels a lot like I can't take credit for the film because, like I said, it came to me fully formed. But on top of that, the the um, narration in the film and all the action that happens in the film, you know, was stuff that actually happened during the siege. The narration is pulled from 
poems and journals and diaries written by people during the siege of Leningrad. So to me, the words, especially some of the some of the scenes that happen and some of the words that she says, I can't think about them now and not cry because they're just, I don't know, to, to go through that and to believe so deeply in a future, in any future. I don't know. It's just, it seems sort of beyond American capabilities. I think about the fact that we know that cigarettes kill us and we still can't get ourselves to quit smoking. And yet these people were living, were choosing to die for generations into the future. And that, I don't know, it's just very hard to reconcile that with the sort of like immediacy and, and instantaneous nature of, of American society. I do want to talk about the production of it um, and Sean Price Williams and his incredible cinematography here the the sound design the way that all of these things as i said it's a sort of moving the slow motion uh, pace of the story in terms of the telling of the story talk about some of these elements bringing sean into the project uh, and the decision to go with a black and white um, palette in terms of telling the story sean was always going to shoot this this film from when we first started talking about it so he he, he sort of taught me everything I know about film, if I'm totally honest. We had basically all the same reference points. Um, you know, I met Sean when I was 19. He really was a big force and, and a part of my development as a filmmaker. So we had the same reference points. So when we started talking about the film, I would pull something up and he'd be like, oh yeah, that's it. That's exactly what I was thinking. And then he'd pull something up and I'd be like, yes, exactly that. That's it. That's on my list too. Like, and we just, it was just check mark after check mark of us being like, okay, we're totally on the same page. And we worked together so much that it really was quite, it was really simple. There were so many times where we'd be shooting something and I would just touch his elbow and he would know exactly what I wanted him to move to. It was very easy to work with him. He's a really big part of this film to me. I wouldn't have made it if he couldn't have made it with me. But the sound design also, in the past, I've recorded all my own sound. So this was the first time working with a sound, a sound person. Yeah, the sound design was really important to me because in a lot of the journals and diaries, I mean, I spent, like I said, 10 years researching this film and read everything there was to read in English about the speech. Every journal that had been translated, you know, just basically everything. Um, I listened to all the music that was written during that time. And so much of it was about the way that the sounds of the city changed. You know, the way that people stopped hearing dogs, people stopped hearing other people, and then the way that they could hear other people, like the horrible things, horrible things that I wish I could, un I could unread. I wish I could forget, you know, hearing other people in other apartments, but just how quiet everything got. And then these crazy sounds of the world blowing up around them and the sort of just this crazy dichotomy of, of chaos and such stillness that oh, that was something I really wanted to be part of the film. And then the thing that, that sort of also really stuck with me was as people were dying there, you know, the whole city of St. Petersburg now and back then had Leningrad back then had these speakers everywhere so they could make announcements and the radio station was in charge of the announcements during the war. And so they would, you know, they would warn about air raids and they would talk about news on the front and things like that. And as people started dying, there were less and less people to man the radio station. And so they would leave a metronome going at the radio station just so that people could know that there was still one person alive at the radio station. Wow. And like I said, I just can't, I can't even think about it without crying because it's so, oh my like, God. I just, 
whoa, it's so hard to imagine that. Sorry, very emotional. Um, but the we actually used the sound of the metronome, the actual sound of the metronome that they that was recorded during World War II um, in the film, and you hear it, and it would change pace. Like if there was an attack coming, the metronome would get faster, and then it would slow back down when the when the danger had had gone. Um, so that was a really big important part of it for me was to include as much of the, like I said, coming from documentary world, to include as much of the real things that happened during that time as possible. A lot of our extras actually were um, either survivors of the siege or they worked at the, they work at the seed bank currently. So we tried to use as much as we could from what we had. We tried to dress the sets as little as possible, you know, just, and, and we shot on location in the seed bank, of course. So, you know, every time that they're doing something in the seed bank, it's something that the scientists there trained them to do. You know, they were like, oh, today we're gonna be doing this because this is what we would be doing on a normal day. Right. Um, so we really tried to incorporate as much factual um, elements as we could. Well, um, yeah, and it, it's hard for me, and I'm sure for almost any American to come to grips with what you just described being in a situation where thousands of people around you are 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 perishing and without any help the cavalry wasn't coming yeah. and that idea of it and there's a couple of scenes in the film one of them that really struck me was the sound of artillery and the and what they the narration was about how and I'm paraphrasing here you die over and over with the sound yeah. of the artillery coming at you and when you're not dead you are resurrected and i mean just just that there's a, there's a number of other scenes in the film that are that powerful and that and that poignant um i just uh i can't i what you just described in your own in your own experiences having seen the film it's completely understandable why you would feel that way yeah it's funny that i still can't watch the film like i still cry when i watch <laughs> when I watch it but I feel like so much of that is because it's it it feels so little like it was my film and just like it was the film that I had to make and um yeah. you know I'm credited as co-writer not because I was working with anyone else but because all of the narration was written by real people yeah um and so those words you know of it whistles again you die again and are resurrected you know about the all of those words they're so I don't think you could write that if you hadn't lived through it. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Jessica Orick. She is the director, producer, co-writer, editor of the film, One Man Dies a Million Times. Yeah. And where does that title come from? Is that from a text in in the, uh, in yes, the diary? It, it is from a text. Um, and I, I'll have to look it up. Um, it's... Um, Olga Berglotz, I can't say her name right. I'm sorry, I speak Russian terribly. Yeah, it's a the the actual the actual piece of text is is it comes at a very critical part in the film. Sort of right. It is the basically she says it matters not that a million people die. What matters is that one man dies a million times. I spent a lot of time talking to the cast and crew about it, um, especially my second my second assistant director uh, um, Anastasia Nastarova was a huge part of the film for me really involved in the translation, really involved in the, you know, acting, coaching the actors, really involved in the um, editing process. She just was a big part of it. Yeah, when we talked about what we were gonna call the film, that was something that we just, she felt very strong and that's what it needed to be called. 
you know, we've talked about this being your first narrative film. You were also working in St. Petersburg where the film was filmed mm -hmm. and the challenges of working in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. It's not unfamiliar to you given your documentary work, but what was the adjustments for you or how do, how did that go? How was that for you? I have to say, I always prefer working in a foreign country. I love working in a language I don't understand. Listening to people speak in a language you don't understand is like shortcutting to their emotion. You can't be distracted by what they're saying. Either you believe what they're saying or you don't. Um, and that, so for me, working with actors, it was actually much easier to work with actors in a foreign language than the little bit of, done, of working with actors that I had done in the US because it just, it was so easy to tell whether it was a good take or not, because either I felt it or I didn't feel it. I enjoyed it quite a lot. I mean, granted, I also worked with an amazing cast and crew that made it so easy to, you know, get along, even though we didn't speak the same language. And Azia was a big, Anastasia Nesterova, the, the second AD, was a big part of that, working with the actors. Yeah, just to identify the two leads, Elisa Lozovskaya and uh, Maxime um, Linoff are just terrific. They're, the entire cast is wonderful in it uh, in terms of just being able to convey the desperation and the and the the attempts to continue with human connections become increasingly more difficult and and problematic. And throughout the film, you feel it. You can feel it from the very beginning of the film till the very end. And um, there is a humanity in the film despite all of the travails, all of the obstacles and the tragedy that's occurring all around them, you can feel this humanity in, in their performances and in the people themselves. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm really glad you think so. I'm really yeah. glad. I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy that, um, you, you know, you, this film is coming out. It's been getting an awful lot of acclaim. Did very well in terms of recognition uh, on the, on the uh, festival circuit delayed from being seen in the world because of, of the pandemic, but it's out now. And um, I urge anyone listening to the sound of our voices to check this out. I'm just such an honor to have you back on the program. Uh, and I'm so happy. Again, I'm so happy for you. This is such a, a remarkable film. So again, the film is called One Man Dies a Million Times. And uh, we're so honored to have with us the director, producer, co-writer, and editor of the film. And that would be Jessica Orrick. Jessica, thank you so much. Anytime, please come back. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 